0: friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. As we embrace the sustained joy of the Easter season, we invite you to join us every week on this show where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We're also on SiriusXM channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and as always, here at Conversations with Consequences, we're so thankful for our listeners for joining us. Week after week, we hope that we will give you a good show this week, and we've worked really hard at it, especially our wonderful producer, Alisa Murphy, who is untiring and seems to have 48 hours in her day, where the rest of us have 24. Today, we'll be speaking to Stephen Mosher of the Population Research Institute. He's a China expert, and we want to get his impressions on the case of Jimmy Lai, who is facing years in prison for standing up for democracy in Hong Kong and for free speech. He's a billionaire and a Catholic who could easily leave the country and live wherever he would like, but instead is martyring himself, really, for those great causes. We'll also be talking to Father Jeff Kirby, who has written a new book, and my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, will be joining me to have him tell us about his book. Uh, He's a moral theologian and, and a wonderful author. We are very happy to welcome back Stephen Mosher to the show. He's the man behind the Population Research Institute and an expert on all things China. Welcome back to the show, Stephen.
1: It's good to be here.
0: Stephen, I always love having you on the show because um, it was your work, partly at the Population Research Institute, that inspired my husband and I to go to China and adopt because we were very moved by your account of, you know, many thousands of little baby girls set aside in orphanages with with no future before them.
1: Well, that's that's wonderful. Every baby adopt from China is a life saved and and you've done you've done more than your share then in saving lives
0: she'll be doing her confirmation on Saturday and oh, she's beyond a blessing she's uh, an utter joy to, to all our family how wonderful uh, <laughs> thank you thank you for inspiring us because it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to us and we have lots of children and I can still say that
1: yes well all children are a blessing in different ways and and but a particular blessing because this is a child of your heart mm-hmm. you, you brought her into your home and into your heart as an actor. To pure love, so that says a lot about you and your your husband. I'm sure you've been richly blessed in consequence.
0: We have. Um, I think it's uh, when you know adoption is something that it's it's like an, an idea that comes from God and then showers graces on the family. So I'm always very grateful to God that that He gave us the that impetus and 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 put that in our hearts. I've been thinking a lot about China this week because we've been reading about Jimmy Lai, and and I'm very sad about him. He is uh, a, a Catholic, a very well known Catholic. In, in Hong Kong, an entrepreneur who is a force for democracy.
1: Well, Jimmy Lai owns and, and runs the Apple Daily. That, when In Chinese, that's the Ping Water bao, which literally is Apple Daily in Chinese. He's the last really free media voice in Hong Kong. The other media in Hong Kong, radio, uh, TV, television, has all been purchased by the Chinese Communist Party or billionaires who are also members of the Chinese Communist Party to control the reporting in that city once free city now, of course, enslaved by the Chinese Communist Party. So as the last bastion of free media, free thought and and free expression in Hong Kong, he's been persecuted tremendously. Jimmy Lai is a hero. He's one of Hong Kong's most prominent defenders of religious freedom and basic human rights. And of course, for that reason, he, along with Martin Lee and some of the other younger Hong Kong democracy movement people like Joshua Wong, have been in prison uh, or in exile uh, for much of the last year.
0: tell us a little bit about Jimmy Lai's Where he came from
1: Jimmy Lai is a lifelong Catholic I have a picture of him being interviewed In his living room And of course in the background He has a picture of uh, the Blessed Mother And the infant Jesus So his faith is is very much alive And part of his life And I would say this about Hong Kong in general You know that's the also the residence Of the great uh, Cardinal Zen, Zen. Mm-hmm. And only 8% of the population Of Hong Kong are Catholic But they've been the leaders in uh, demanding respect for human rights. They've been the leaders in demanding that uh, the Chinese Communist Party respect its agreement with the Hong Kong people and with the British government to allow them to really live their own lives in peace for the next 30 years. Uh, China has violated that agreement, continues to violate it in an in embrace a and disregard for the commitments it made in 1997. 1997, of course, was the year when Hong Kong turned over sovereignty to Hong Kong, back to China. But only on the understanding that they would leave Hong Kong alone until 2047. Well, it's a long way from 2021 to 2047, but they've already violated the agreement. Hong Kong now is just another Chinese city. Like Beijing, like Shanghai, it's under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party. So Jimmy Lai and his sons have been fighting for democracy, have been fighting for freedom, uh, really their entire lives. He could easily have left. Mm -hmm. He's a man of means. Uh, He publishes the Apple Daily, not just in Hong Kong, but in Taiwan, uh, in other parts of the world. He has a media empire. And so he could die peacefully in his bed some years from now in a safe haven like Australia, the United States or Canada or Taiwan. But he has chosen to stay in Hong Kong in chains. You know, he will probably wind up dying in a prison cell, either somewhere in Hong Kong or somewhere in mainland China in in many years, many years to come. But he's a faithful Catholic. And he says basically that if he has the choice of dying peacefully in bed outside Hong Kong or dying in pain in a Chinese jail, the question for him is not how he will die, but how he will get to heaven. He doesn't want to give up his convictions and and leave Hong Kong. Uh, And that really stems from his Catholic faith, his belief in God, his belief and the unalienable rights of every human being created in the image and likeness of God, the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, the right to freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, which is now being violated, sadly, in Hong Kong every single day.
0: You know, I've known, uh, Stephen, several dissidents, the the ones I happen to know have been Cuban. They have been men and women who are able to set aside all their own private hopes and loves and the things that they cherish, uh, their families, um, their future, their, their health, in order to achieve a greater good or at least try to achieve that greater good it's, it's really spectacular that Jimmy Lai with all the ability that he has to just f- to simply live a better life somewhere else um, and free himself from, from all this is, is choosing to stay in prison and he wrote a letter a beautiful letter from prison and I'll quote Hong Kong's situation is increasingly chilling but precisely because of that we need to love and cherish ourselves more the era is falling apart before us and it is time for us to stand tall and keep our heads high it's really wonderful I think, Stephen, that the people in Hong Kong who hope for their freedom have a leader like Jimmy Lai to inspire them.
1: Yeah, I do, too. And I, I think that faithful Catholics, you and I and Jimmy Lai and Martin Lee and, and the others in Hong Kong who are fighting for freedom, understand that Chinese communism is not immortal. It will end. It will end. And when it ends, China will be the greatest field of Christian mission in centuries. And it will be the people from Hong Kong, the Catholics in Hong Kong and the faithful Catholics in Hong Kong who lead that missionary enterprise. Enterprise. And, you know, being Catholic, they're not solely focused on the here and now. They understand that there is a glorious hereafter awaiting them. Uh, however painful, however much suffering they endure in this life, they will be in that part of that glorious reunion in heaven in the next. And I think that gives them wisdom, it gives them perspective, and it gives them courage to fight the good fight for as long as they have breath in their body on this earth. And that's uh, that's Jimmy Lai.
0: Do you think anyone in our country in the current administration is worried about Jimmy Lai and, and what's being? done to him and the other pro-democracy
1: uh, activists? Well, there's so much to pray for these days uh, where China is concerned, but I would hope that, that faithful Catholics listening to the program would be praying for Jimmy Lai and Martin Lee and the other democratic activists who are being imprisoned for their, for their prisoners of conscience, really. The It's too early to tell how strongly the Biden administration will speak up for people like Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong. It's still early days, and I'm hoping that the very sound policies, the very strong Strong policies uh, that were put in place under the uh, in the State Department under Mike Pompeo for example and with with uh, a senator later ambassador at large for religious freedom Sam Brownback wonderful Catholic himself mm-hmm. uh, those policies of speaking out firmly and strongly on human rights and violations and sanctioning officials in Hong Kong and other parts of China responsible for human rights violations I'm hoping those policies will continue there's some evidence that they will but we need to keep the pressure on The fact is... For the last 30 years, I've worked on human rights issues in China. And it is always the case that if you bring enough attention to the plight of someone like Jimmy Lai or Martin Lee or other political dissidents in China, religious prisoners of conscience in China, to the outside world, the Chinese Communist Party, which is afraid of losing face, will back down, will back off and cut the sentence of these people or even release them from jail entirely and allow them freedom. So we need to keep the pressure on. We need to call attention to the terrible human rights violations that are being carried out by the Chinese Communist Party. And again, we can pray them out of prison.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're speaking to Mr. Stephen Mosher of the Population Research Institute. Now, Talking about face in China, saving face, um, the Olympics are set to be held, the Winter Olympics in 2022, and there are people calling for a boycott. Do you think this is something the Olympics have would pressure China to make some changes or maybe even release some of their prisoners like Jimmy Lai?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, all sorts of we should be pressing all sorts of pressure points where China is concerned. I have been an advocate of boycotting the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics are scheduled to be held in Beijing in 2022. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's a very bad idea because the human rights situation in China, grace is is probably worse now than it has ever been in the last 40 years, and I say that as someone who 41 years ago was in the operating room in China when they were forcibly aborting and sterilizing Chinese women by the millions. And you say, what could be worse than that? I mean, that was 1980. Well, what's worse than that is they're now sterilizing and aborting minority women in China. But aside from that, uh, they've locked up a million and a half Uyghurs uh, from the far west, a Turkish speaking people, along with a couple hundred thousand Kazakhs and other minorities in concentration camps uh, where they're used to slave labor. Uh, the women are forced to work long hours during the day and if they're young and pretty they're they're mistreated, they're abused uh, sexually at night. So the, the from the standpoint of religious freedom, from the standpoint of the persecution of minorities, from the standpoint of genocide in uh, eastern Turkestan, from the standpoint of, of political dissidents being arrested, the human rights situation in China is, is, is very bad now and getting worse. And and it's because of the fact that we now have in power in China, uh, really a clone of Mao Zedong. Uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the current leader of China, who is not the president of China, you never, if you read Chinese, as I do, there's no, he has no title like president, Zedong Tong. He is the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. He's a general secretary of the Central Military Commission who controls the People's Liberation Army, right? He is the head of the Communist Party and the head of the military. They like to use the word president because it suggests that he's somehow democratically elected mm-hmm. and he's not and because he's a clone of mao and because he wants absolute power in a in a, a, a it's almost a, a megalomaniac in that sense all roads lead to xi jinping they're now closing down churches in china and they're converting in them into what are called civilization practice centers for the new era so you take down the cross uh, you tell the pastor that from now on he's got to be a propagandist for the chinese communist party you bring in communist party cadres and you take away the Bibles and you give them the collected works of Xi Jinping none other than Xi Jinping and they spend hours a day in the church what used to be a church now this civilization practice center for the new era learning to recite the sayings of Xi Jinping and they're told Grace they're told that they should not worship God because all the good things in their life their food their clothing their housing comes from none other than their new God Xi Jinping and they should have no other gods before them than Xi Jinping himself that's what's happening in China right now we haven't seen this kind of religious fervor for the Chinese Communist Party and its leader since the, the days of the Cultural Revolution back in the 1960s and early 70s. So that's why I say the, the human rights situation in China is, is the worst that it's been in the last four decades.
0: So why do you think uh, the, the premier is, um, is doing this sort of retread of the Cultural Revolution? Is it to, to expand China's, in order to, to strengthen China and expand its hold over the area?
1: He has consciously modeled himself on Mao Zedong. He aspires to be what Mao was, and that is, an absolute despotic ruler of a of a people who look to him for everything everything good in their life and uh because he's modeled himself on Mao Zedong he has a a a very large cult of personality he has published his collected works in the same way that Mao published his collected works and had the little red book Mm -hmm. Xi Jinping has the high-tech version of the little red book you know what that is that's the Xi Jinping app that you if you're in China you have to download on your phone and every day you have to read a lesson from the writings of Xi Jinping. Really? And then after, yes. And then after reading the lesson, takes you 20, 30 minutes, you have to answer questions correctly on the lesson that you've just read. And you have to complete that assignment every day in order to keep your political credit score. They call it a social credit score, but it's really a political credit score. You have to keep your political credit score above water. You have to do your Xi Jinping lesson every day. So it's the in the old days, of course, they had the Little Red, book, they'd have study sessions in the evening. Now, of course, they bring the study session to your iPhone, they track you on your phone, so they know whether or not you've done your lesson for the day or not. And so doctors in China, lawyers in China, engineers in China, uh, not just Communist Party officials, not just ordinary people, everybody has to do the Xi Jinping lesson every day. That shows you the extent to which this cult of personality, this unhealthy cult of personality for Xi Jinping, in which he's used to be all things to all people, has grown in China. And so what the Chinese Communist Party officially atheistic is trying to do, of course, is what communist parties always try to do, try to replace faith in God with faith in this God, lowercase g, uh, that has failed communism over and over and over again in human history, this God, lowercase g, communism that has killed hundreds of millions of people over the last century. They're trying to create a church in China out of China itself, where the acolytes in the church are Communist Party members. And of course, the supreme leader, the supreme pontiff would be Xi Jinping himself. That's what's going on in China. It's an effort to not just dethrone God, but to replace him with the Communist Party and its minions. And that's why the church in China is under such intense persecution uh, today, because the Communist Party sees it as competing uh, for the hearts and minds of the Chinese people. No,
0: Stephen, I know that you know that last week, the All Star game was pulled uh, from Georgia over voting laws uh, that were democratically uh, instituted in Georgia by the the democratically elected legislators. At the same time, some of the Major League Baseball teams have renewed contract with China. How is it that, I know you'd be speculating, but how is it that um, people can close their eyes to the atrocities in China and the utter lack of freedom and at the same time complain about something? like regular voting laws in a state like Georgia?
1: Well, what we saw in with Major League Baseball, was a open, above-board, blatant criticism of the very reasonable Voting Voting Rights Act in Georgia, which increases the opportunity to vote, actually, but does require IDs. You need an ID for everything. Why wouldn't you need it to vote? Mm-hmm. Um, but why did, why did Major League Baseball weigh in on that controversy? At the same time, it ignored all of the human rights violations in China. Well, one of the reasons is that Major League Baseball just renewed its contract with a company in China called Tencent which is sort of china's equivalent of facebook and twitter and that chinese company like all companies in china has very close ties to the chinese communist party in effect it's controlled by the chinese communist party and the new contract between major league baseball and the communists will expand live broadcasts of baseball games in china and expand membership services in china in other words the major league baseball expects to make a lot of money in china by By this deal that it has inked with the chinese communist party and we have to understand that a a lot of people think of china as having a a market uh, or a a market economy it doesn't Uh, the chinese economy is a racket and the racket is controlled by the chinese communist party and if you want a piece of the action if you want a, a part of the racket you have to do the bidding of the chinese communist party they'll let you in to china the way that they have let Major League Baseball into China. They will let Major League Baseball make some money in China. But the cost of doing that is this. You have to be absolutely silent when it comes to human rights violations in China. You can't say a word against China. Uh, And you can't talk about Taiwan either or Tibet or Tiananmen massacre or anything like that. And also, at the right time, you have to lobby Washington, D.C., your own country, your own politicians to go soft on China. So they they use american companies they allow american companies into the chinese market and then turn around and demand of those companies like coca-cola like major league baseball uh like some other companies we could talk about the airlines for example they have to do china's bidding in washington dc uh their lobbyists have to urge our country to go soft on China and not talk about human rights violations either. That's how the game is played. These guys play hardball since we're into baseball, right? Let's <laughs> use a baseball metaphor. They play hardball. It, they'll make you let you make a dollar, but they will want your soul in exchange for that.
0: It's very shameful that Americans can allow themselves to be co-opted like that and, and, and in such an ignorant and shameful way.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, it's, uh, but the Chinese Communist Party knows how to use uh, the American companies' desire for access to the China's market to their advantage. Uh, they know that every American you know, multinational company dreams of having a billion customers in China. Well, they'll never have a billion customers in China. They'll be given a piece of the market share. They'll be allowed to make a little money, but boy, they better not say anything about the Uyghurs or the persecution of Catholics in China or the arrest of the Falun Gong or the harvesting of organs and the selling of organs on the open market overseas. Uh, they better be absolutely quiet about that or they'll be shut out of China instantly.
0: The last time you were on you were kind enough to be on with us, Stephen, on the show it was just after Mike Pompeo of of the last administration Secretary of State had declared the situation in China with the Uyghurs a genocide. And that seemed like a very important declaration something that could have a lot of weight in in public opinion and in in consequences. But I don't, I haven't seen anything much happening uh, with that situation. I feel like the West continues to close its eyes to the ongoing genocide of the Uyghurs?
1: Uh, China, the Chinese Communist Party, when I say China, I always mean uh, the Chinese of Communist Party, Grace. I don't mean the Chinese of people, course. who are the first and foremost victims of the Chinese Communist Party, always have been, always will be, as long as the party's in power. And But what I would say about uh, Mike Pompeo's declaration is this. We in the United States of America owe a great debt of gratitude to Mike Pompeo uh, because for the first time, and I told him this, I spoke on the phone with, with, with the former Secretary of State a couple days ago, And I told him that that he was the first secretary of state of the United States of America in the last 35 years to get China policy right, to not put human rights on the back burner in anticipation of, you know, a billion customers for American companies, for example, mm-hmm. but to put human rights front and center. And I know that Mike Pompeo worked very hard on that front, that there were a lot of people in the Trump administration who said, well, you know, we ought to talk about trade and maybe put tariffs on Chinese goods, but we don't want to bear down too hard on human rights. And Mike Pompeo, who's a who's a very uh, devout Christian, said, no, no, we have to focus on human rights as well. And he was the who was pushing uh, for the declaration that genocide was being committed against the Uyghurs uh, in the far west of China. Now, this is the far west of China. Uh, I call it uh, Eastern Turkestan because it was a spree and separate country for thousands of years okay mm-hmm. the, the Uyghur, the turkish speaking people who live there have been there on that soil for a long long time and they were in fact independent up until 1949 when the chinese communist party came to power and invaded their country and took it over so like tibet eastern Turkestan is an occupied country occupied by uh, the forces of the chinese communist party uh, mike pompeo led the charge in that it looks like the the current administration is going to continue that designation. They've waffled a little bit, but I don't think they can walk away from it. And let's be clear about this. The definition of genocide, the textbook legal definition of genocide, includes forced abortion and forced sterilization. That's one of the criteria. And what they're doing in eastern Turkestan to the Uyghur women is forced abortion and forced sterilization. So it meets clearly the technical definition of genocide uh so there's no question that's what's happening chinese communist party is spending i mean i don't know how much money Trying to launch a counter-propaganda campaign against that designation because it's not just the United States that has called out China. It's European countries, it's Australia, other countries, Canada as well has called out China for its its imprisonment of a couple million Uyghurs, the brutalization of Uyghur women, forced abortions, forced sterilizations, the tearing down of of, of, of mosques and churches, all the rest. Um, so um, this is you know genocide in real time. We. Didn't know back in 1936 when we were going to Berlin for the Berlin Olympics in 1936, uh, we didn't know what was coming uh, in the near future uh, for the Jewish people in Germany and the occupied territories by the Nazis. Uh, we didn't know that there was going to be genocide, mass mm-hmm. killing um, of, of not just Jews but but Catholics as well. But we know what's happening in eastern turkistan we know what's happening in the far west of china we know that genocide is going on now in real time and we should not go to beijing next spring uh, for the winter olympics of 2022 and give them a propaganda coup you know ultimately the olympics is about celebrating the human spirit it's about human beings men and women being the best they can be in in every field of athletic endeavor you know it's not just about uh, who can do the triple sao cow we celebrate that but it's about you know celebrating the human spirit people who've worked hard for long periods of time to be the best that they can be in china that spirit of freedom that spirit of endeavor is violated every day china is the worst place in the world to hold the the winter olympics of 2022 and i know that 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 mike pompeo and I talked to him about this, Uh, they were pressing in the last six months of the Trump administration, they were pressing their allies and pressing the International Olympic Committee to move the Winter Olympics from China someplace else, any place else, a country that respected human rights, for example, would be a good site for the Olympics. And so they they pushed on that as hard as they could. And of course, they're no longer in office and the Biden administration will see what they do on this front, but so far, uh, we haven't heard anything definitive about pressing to move the Olympics. I would, you know, be happy to to move the Olympics almost anywhere rather than Beijing. Back in 2008 when we held the, the Beijing Olympics of 2008 in Beijing, uh, the human rights abuses uh, that were caused by the Olympics were unbelievable. They were leveling entire city blocks of mm-hmm. old housing because they wanted to, to beautify the city. They left 100,000 people homeless. They were driven out in the streets in the middle of winter, they had, they had no place to go. They were bulldozing their homes just to make the widen the boulevards. They were painting the dead grass green oh. to make it look like the grass was actually alive when it was dead. They were arresting dissidents. They were imprisoning beggars on the streets. Uh, They were kicking all the people, the country people who were in the cities working day jobs. They were all sent into exile in country. I mean, anyone who might make a, a noise about human rights violations during the 2008 Olympics was locked up or sent away. So the Olympic Games themselves were the cause of a massive wave of human rights violations in China. And in the same way, the Winter Olympics of next year will be the cause of a massive wave of human rights violations of the Chinese people. You can bet on that.
0: Well, Mike Pompeo very publicly said that if the Olympics were held in China, they should be called the, the Genocide Olympics. Yeah. And uh, yes. it's yeah. wonderful. It, it was wonderful to have someone like him on board. And, and Stephen, it's wonderful to have you always on top of everything that's going on, of the brutality of the Chinese Communist government. And thank you for giving us this update. And we will definitely be praying for Jimmy Lai and the Chinese people, always continuously that they be uh, relieved of this terrible oppression. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much having me.
0: You can learn more about Stephen Mosher's work at pop.org. P-O-P dot O-R-G. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my dear friend and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. We are now welcoming Father Jeff Kirby back to the show. Father Kirby is a fearless shepherd of Our Lady of Grace in Indian land, South Carolina, and a renowned moral theologian. He was named a missionary of mercy by Pope Francis a few years ago now, and he's also an author of several books. He's out with a new book, which is especially important given the current uh, crazy times that we live in. Welcome to the show, Father Kirby.
2: Thank you. It's good to be back. Thank you.
0: Father, your new book is called Real Religion, How to Avoid False Faith and Worship God in Spirit and Truth. And you write in the first pages of your book that, and I'm quoting now, Modern Western culture, separated from the convictions that created it, has convinced people that they are the standard of all things. Can you explain what you mean? Because it, it really rang true to me.
2: Yes, yes, yes. So first, even just the, the title, uh, Real Religion, uh, already people have expressed, you know, shock and dismay over the title. You know, how, how can you possibly say that anything is real, uh, <laughs> let alone religion, right? You mm-hmm. know? And, and that's related to the to the quote you just read, which is, you know, when when we abandon and, and separate ourselves from Judeo-Christian principles or, or even just principles of realism, you know, the, the fact that we acknowledge a reality outside of of our, ourselves, uh, when, when all that is gone, then we become the only standard. So, I mean, just imagine that the chaos, I, mean, I guess you don't have to imagine, we can just look at our world, the, the, the chaos that happens when there's no longer any standard, any sense of principle, any sense of moral truth outside of myself. Things are only true if I think they're true. They're only true if I feel like they're true. And, and of course, what that leads to is not only the loss of religion, but ultimately the loss of civil society, the loss of virtue, loss of love. It completely implodes the vocation of the human person.
3: Well, it's so true. I'm thinking of what John Paul II said, that um, man becomes incomprehensible to himself without this sense of reality and love. And I love what you said in the introduction of the book about this being the sin of our first parents, the original sin of Adam and Eve. Can you explain that to us a little bit?
2: Yeah, so of course we have the the figurative language of of the Genesis account where our parents are, are given this beautiful garden they are they are blessed and cared for by our heavenly father and in order to respect their freedom there's one tree that they are not to eat of and of course the evil one comes and and whispers lies and says you know god's keeping something from you you're supposed to be greater you're supposed to be his equal and of course the, the power that's being held back is the power to determine to determine what is right and wrong and god said don't eat from that tree. Don't don't try to exercise that power because it's beyond us. We, we don't have the power, the perspective, the, the understanding in order to determine what is right and wrong. Hey, our first parents chose not to obey our Heavenly Father. Instead said, no, we are going to take this power for ourselves. We are going to decide what is right and what is wrong. Well, there it is. Like that, That's the fall. You know, No longer this sense of, of trust in God or willingness to obey Him or to love Him. And, and that begins this downward spiral that we see throughout human history. Now, that spiral can be stopped and reversed by the power of God's grace. Grace which comes from true worship, real religion. But this battle will continue until the end of time. And it began there in the garden with our first parents.
3: Father, tell us what you mean by this. Your your book distinguishes between what you call real religion versus false religion. But it, it's not a book where you're looking at other religions. You're actually referring to Catholics practicing a false type of religion. Can you expound on that a little bit?
2: Yes, and it, it's broadest context by arguing for real religion, uh, what ultimately the distinction is ultimately between real religion, which means we're worshiping God, or false religion, which is that we are worshiping ourselves. So, in the broadest context, uh, that's how we can understand uh, real religion is when I'm trying to move outside of myself, my own sentiments. I'm trying to encounter God, the living and true God. Uh, false religion is when no, it's just all about me, <laughs> like what I want, what I feel, what I think is good. Uh, that that's the false religion. So that's the broadest context. Now, now certainly we know that God is one; He's infinitely perfect, less than Himself, and that He has revealed Himself to us. So we who are Christians know of the fullness of this revelation in Jesus Christ. And there's no higher worship of God than the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. But in its broadest context real religion is when someone is trying to know God, the true God, getting out of themselves, or we have this version this other option of this false religion, which is again, just self-worship
0: I've noticed, Father, that uh, many people, many Catholics who practice their religion, they, they go to Mass on Sundays and they're, they're engaged they are actually practicing what you call a false religion because they've, they've assumed certain things from the outside culture, from modern culture, about religion, that religion is, is a way for us to feel good about ourselves to have a peaceful life, to be prosperous and successful in our, and not even in a materialistic way, but even just to be successful in our human relationships and um, to have sort of that, uh, that general peace that comes from religion. Uh, yes. And, and they've, they've assimilated this and, and they're not even aware that that's how they're thinking about it.
2: Absolutely. I, I borrowed a quote from the Southern writer southern uh, catholic writer flannery o'connor that it, it really is the, the gas we breathe
3: mm-hmm.
2: so even those of us who are fighting the good fight who want to worship god in spirit and truth uh, it, it's the gas we breathe. And there are many who don't even know that they're breathing gas, and, and so they've kind of accepted the cultural presumptions of what religion's supposed to be, as, as you just described. It's supposed to make me happy, it's supposed to make me feel good, it's supposed to give me emotional peace. Well, none of that's biblical, right? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and none of that are, are the primary promises that God has given to us. You know, so you can imagine a person who says, no, uh, religion is supposed to, make me emotionally peaceful and then they go to worship and they're told no you have to go and serve the poor and you have to carry a cross and you have to forgive your enemy like wait a minute no 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 you must be wrong right Mm -hmm. this message is wrong because no 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 this is supposed to make me emotionally happy and that doesn't make me happy so to your point is people are actually rejecting revealed religion so these are catholics who are a part of the catholic church who are hearing the gospel of jesus christ and are then turning and saying that the gospel is wrong right or that the church is wrong because again, this, this gas we breeze, they have been convinced that religion is about them being emotionally peaceful or being subjectively satisfied.
3: Father, in the book, you illustrate this point by recounting a conversation you had with a young couple who were sitting in your office one day, and they were saying, you know, Father, if only you had better music. If only, you know, if only, if only. <laughs> right. and, and you try to explain to them that worship is about the adoration of God. Um, yes. So can, can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes, and I, and I have to tell you, uh, it was encounters like that there are a few others throughout the book that i I sprinkled in to illustrate points but It was situations like that that actually led to the writing of this book to give a full, digestible, understandable explanation of of what right religion is supposed to be. Because with this couple, they come, they're very well-intentioned. We sat for almost an hour as they were describing everything that we can do to, as they said, make the Mass better. Now, when we hear that, we should immediately cringe because the Mass is the representation of the Lord's sacrifice to God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no making that better. <laughs> you know, right? And of course what they meant was they wanted it more subjectively satisfying. And you can imagine everything from a mega church in their list, and they wanted to impose that upon uh, the worship of the mass. Now, for the hour we were talking, they give all these ideas and suggestions. At the end, I pointed out to them, there was one person that they did not reference in the entire conversation. So you can imagine an hour of conversation. They were looking at me like, what are you talking about? I said, in this entire conversation, you have not yet referenced God. You have not spoken about God at one time in this conversation. Thinking that that would be kind of the wake up, like, gosh, maybe something's wrong with our ideas. If we could go for an entire hour and not even talk about God. But no, it didn't. That didn't happen. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, instead, it became a back and forth and, and the conversation kind of just dissolved. Uh, but I was trying to point out to them, which is we can list all the things that we suspect that we want to make us happy. But adoration of God is the point of worship, which is exactly leading ourselves, dying to ourselves to be with God there during the sacrifice to, to again, die to ourselves so we can encounter God as he has revealed himself. And that's the real challenge. This is why religion is a virtue, right? We exercise this virtue, we die to ourselves, we ask for the the help of God's grace, in order to do this. Unfortunately, this young couple didn't quite understand that.
0: If you're just joining us, you are listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my dear friend and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. And we're talking to Father Jeff Kirby of South Carolina, who's just written a new book called Real Religion. Now, Father, you were just talking and last night I had a a group of women came over. We had this, we have this weekly meeting. We talk about different topics and we were talking about how it is that children Grow up, and they stop going to mass. I was telling them, "Well, you know what I'm, what I'm, what I feel in, uh, what I sense in our parochial school, for instance, is a, a real lack of teaching the children that mass is a beautiful obligation that's laid upon us for our own good by God. Our weekly mass obligation, and we don't go to have a fun time. Uh, we don't go to be entertained or to hear beautiful music. We go because God uh, calls us to encounter for our own good, because He knows that we must have that encounter with Him." in order to lead a life that will eventually bring us home. So it does make a lot of sense to me that we are unfortunately teaching young people that the Mass, when, when it's boring and unsatisfying, then we can discard it and not uh, we don't see the Mass as this, this beautiful obligation laid upon us.
2: I, I think that you know, by allowing a misunderstanding of worship, uh, it has come back uh, with dire consequences in the state of the world and the life of the church. Because when we really think that worship of God is supposed to be about me, that I'm supposed to get something out of it. I'm supposed to be made subjectively happy. We have completely inversed the very purpose of worship. If anything in our world reminds us of our place, that we are creatures, that we are called to humility and gratitude, that we are called to approach the world in a a posture of receptivity. If anything helps us with that, it is worship. We go before God, the creator of all things, and we are reminded by the very act of worship of where we really fit. We can't go to worship, true worship, real religion, and walk out thinking that we are greater than we truly are, mm-hmm. or that we are somehow the center of the universe, because true worship, real religion, puts us in our place, right? And I suspect that that's why so many contemporary people find it boring, or it doesn't help me, or again, these things that they think religion and worship supposed to be, real religion doesn't measure up because those are false standards. Like, those are not biblical standards, because real religion is very actually liberating. Good. The whole world doesn't rest on my shoulders. Good. Mm -hmm. I don't have to define the whole of reality. Like, there's a great peace and consolation that comes with that. And also, when we go before God and we worship him, so the virtue of religion in our tradition is placed within the virtue of justice. And justice is giving someone else their due. That can be punitive. Someone does something wrong, then there should be some type of discipline or punishment. But justice also has a positive aspect. Someone works for me, I pay them a just wage. Can we place the virtue of religion? within the virtue of justice. Because religion is is when we give God his due. We give justice to God. And when I look at the world, I see so many movements that want equality and justice and so on. These are all of themselves good, oftentimes misleading or mis- misled, misguided. But the intention can be good. But we're never going to get it right if we don't start by giving God his justice. Because I turn to God and acknowledge he is the father of all, creator of all things. And I give him justice. Then I'm forced to look to my left and right and realize I need to give justice to my neighbors. But if I take God out of the equation, and then I think that I'm going to somehow, out of some false sense of goodness in my heart, give justice to my neighbors. It's foolishness. I will redefine justice. I will manipulate in order to get whatever I want. I will demand justice but give it to no one.
3: Father, the last chapter of your book is called When Religion Becomes Social Activism. And this is something that I struggle with sometimes. When you work in the pro-life movement or when you're out there working to promote religious freedom, religious liberty, it can be so all-absorbing that you can forget about ju- just what you're talking about. So, so I really appreciate that, what you have to say on that, but I wanted to ask you a question to your previous point, because this is something I've been struggling with. In my parish, we had the most incredibly gifted homilist. He always gave a homily with a punch. It was always challenging and inspiring. It was frequently very funny. He was a uniquely gifted guy. He actually teaches homiletics, but our priest was made a bishop, so we've lost him and we're mourning his loss because he was such a wonderful and holy man. To be frank, some priests are more gifted in terms of homiletics than others just by the nature of their natural gifts. So I'm struggling to teach my children now just what you're talking about here, that the Mass isn't about, you know, is it a good homily? Is it a boring homily? But can you help me? How how can we help <laughs> teach our children this lesson?
2: <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, and I will say with the, with the homily, you know, lead, leading to, to an answer to your question, I will say that I think that most priests probably need to invest more time in the preparation of the homily because you can have someone who is not a talented public speaker that can still be a phenomenal homilist. St. John Henry Carter Newman is very <laughs> monotone. He was not, of again, public speaker he was an eminent homeless people would pack his church to listen to him because he had something good to say and people were willing to endure that he wasn't the great orator because they wanted to listen to him Uh, so i think that one part in terms of the priest or deacon's responsibility to prepare well give the people something that applies to their life that helps them to understand what it means to be a disciple of jesus christ and to try to live that faith in the midst of our world so that's on the ordained part in terms of the listener, the, the baptized who are receiving the homily, I'm always consoled by St. Augustine. He said, a good listener has never heard a bad homily. And there is a part mm-hmm. where, uh, whether it's a lack of oratory ability, or even if the priest or deacon did not prepare well, there is a part where even that can be a part of the sacrifice where, okay, I really needed to just hear that strong message. I really needed that conviction today, but this is what the Lord has given, right? This is what's being presented at this sacrifice right now. And to try to find in the midst of whatever's presented, the truths or the things that can help us in order to say, give that yes, that continual yes to whatever the Lord asks of us. So I think on the priest deacon part, there has to be the preparation and, and the understanding of what's The homily is supposed to be. St. Paul says the spiritual gift of homiletics, the fruit of that gift is conviction among the believers. On the ordained part, it's a heavy responsibility. On the baptized part, we accept what God has presented and do what we can.
0: Father, my my husband's a convert from Judaism. When he first started going to Mass with me when we were engaged, he thought really that the Mass was all about the homily. And we were lucky enough and fortunate enough to, to go to many different churches where the, where the homilies were fabulous. But it took him several years to understand that the Mass was the Mass. <laughs> that there was yeah. this beautiful otherworldly moment going on at each Mass that we were privileged to be a part of. Uh, but yeah. that's that was really lovely to watch him make that that movement from yes. a, a spectator of, of a pretty encounter with music and and, and some <laughs> lovely sayings to being present at, at Calvary as the masses. I think we need to, you know, we need to communicate that, especially to the young, so that they can also yes. make that uh, progress.
2: Absolutely. In fact, if you look at a lot of the homilies from the early church, the homily always ended by directing baptized to the altar. So it concludes, and now as we prepare for the sacrifice, so now as we approach the altar of the Lord, there was a lead-in to the end of the homily, so it was clear that the homeless was now Having presented the the preaching on the Word of God now shows deference to the movement to the altar, which is the heart, the the primary portion of, of worship. And as you saw in your own loved one, to see that conversion, which I hope this book helps in the hearts of many, to see that conversion to understand what true worship is, what is placed before us. Because I can go and listen to a good talk, an inspiring talk, but that's not worship. Even when I receive a good you know well spoken oratorial uh, masterpiece of public speaking in the homily the purpose of that is to draw from that you know the truth that will allow for deeper conviction so as you as you're describing uh, you know that that movement that we can see in our own hearts too at times like you know, things like, oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, my, how, how did I miss that? And then to see that in the hearts of loved ones is as more and more God is calling us to himself. Isn't it is amazing that we have a God who loves us, who has revealed himself to us and revealed how we can worship him in order to receive the grace to fulfill our vocations to be his sons and daughters? Like, that's, that's the love of the God who has created us and he calls us to himself.
0: Father, that was lovely, and I'm sorry to say that we're out of time, but we really appreciate your time uh, today that you've given us, and we hope that our listeners will pick up your new book. I'll repeat, it's called Real Religion, and it's a perfect book for this Easter season. Make sure to check out Catholic Answers Press for more information, or you can visit fatherkirby.com, that's F-R-K-I-R by.com and thank you again father for your insights and wisdom
2: My, my pleasure god bless you
0: and now father roger landry offers us as is customary a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this
4: sunday's gospel this is father roger landry and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen lord jesus wants to have with each of us if ever there were a day for a party it was the day jesus rose from the dead It was the happiest day in all of human history, made more jubilant by ending the terrible despair and dejection of the disciples over the previous two days. And once the immense shock of seeing Jesus risen from the dead walk through the closed doors of the upper room to greet them had worn off, St. Luke tells us that the disciples were incredulous for joy and amazed, but they didn't run out for gallons of wine or ask Jesus to convert water into champagne. Jesus didn't call for cakes and fruit and other Middle Eastern celebratory fear. Instead, in the midst of the joy of His resurrection, Jesus turned the upper room into a vocational training school and began to finish the training of the disciples and apostles to fulfill his saving mission. There was a certain urgency involved in this that Jesus didn't want to put off until the morrow. The fields were white and ready for the harvest, and Jesus wanted the apostles and the disciples with them to get ready to go out to take in that harvest. In the Gospel that we will encounter this Sunday, which is St. Luke's version of what happened on Easter Sunday night, we see how Jesus finishes his preparations so that the apostles might become his witness to all nations. He did it for them in three steps. Three steps he wants to happen in your life and mine. First, Jesus allowed himself to be seen, encountered, embraced. The apostles were troubled, and he came to give them his peace. This, we can say, points to the need for prayer to come into the presence of the Lord so that he may likewise give us his peace. Jesus showed them his body and invited them to touch him. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't imaginary. He was real. St. Luke tells us that they were amazed and incredulous for sheer joy. This points to the need for us to recognize that Jesus' presence with us isn't phantasmic. He's real. He's got real flesh and blood. We can see him. We can touch him, and not just on the outside, but on the inside. All this points to the importance of the Eucharist, which is meant to amaze us and make us incredulous for sheer joy. This truth that seems too good to be true actually is true. God is with us in his risen body and blood, and he comes to give us himself. Any apostle needs to live a Eucharistic life, to be amazed at God's gift of himself, and bring that joy out to others. Second, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, St. Luke tells us. Just like he had done hours before on the, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, whose heart he had made burn as he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scripture. So Jesus filled his apostles with a similar fire, showing them too how everything foretold had been accomplished. He was the fulfillment of Joseph's being betrayed by his brothers, of the innocent Abel killed by his brother Cain, of the suffering servant whom Isaiah prophesied would be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, of the Passover lamb, and more. As St. Luke's Gospel summarizes, Jesus helped them to see how everything written about him in the Law of Moses, the Prophets and the Psalms, had to be fulfilled. Likewise for us, we need to allow Jesus to open our minds to understand the Scriptures. Third, Jesus commissioned them as witnesses, telling them, You are witnesses of these things, witnesses of all that happened to Jesus, his life, death and resurrection, witnesses to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, that they themselves had been reconciled through the mercy they were commissioned to proclaim. Likewise, we are all called to be witnesses of Jesus' whole life and the life transforming aspect of his life in ours, of the reality that he is very much alive and seeks to bring us to life to the full. The path begins with an encounter that can't be taken for granted. There are many Catholics who keep the Ten Commandments, who are engaged in charitable works, who only know about Jesus rather than know the Lord personally. They say their prayers rather than enter into a genuine prayerful dialogue. They go to confession and forensically audit their soul, but do so as if they were engaging in a good spiritual exercise, rather than meeting the Lord who out of mercy died to take their sins away. They come to the Mass if they were, as if they were attending a commemoration or sacred ceremony, rather than really meeting Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who was wrapped in swaddling clothes, who walked the dusty streets of Palestine and hurdled the waves of the Galilean Sea, who was hammered to the tree on Calvary, rose from the dead and entered the upper room. Many young people live by good Catholic values they've inherited from their parents, grandparents and godparents, but haven't yet made those values personal. They're comfortable answering the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? But not yet, who do you say that I am? Because they really haven't had that personal encounter with Jesus that's supposed to be the source and summit of every day in the life of a Christian who prays and lives by faith. In order to become a witness, however, we need to do more than simply encounter Jesus. We know that there were many in Jesus' time who met him, heard his words, who could even repeat them, but who chose not to follow him and not to bring others to encounter and follow him as well. Nicodemus, for example, came to meet Jesus by night, but he was too afraid to encounter Jesus in the daylight and potentially put at risk his position with the Sanhedrin. We're called to be Jesus' witnesses, not, as Cardinal Sean O'Malley likes to say, members of a witness protection program. Jesus meets us not only to change our lives forever, but to make us his instruments to change others' lives in the same radical way. If we've really encountered Jesus, we can't help but share him. There's a third aspect of witness we need to confront. The witness we're called to give is one truly of Jesus, of his way of being, acting, interacting, of the way he changes us for the better. The 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who coined the phrase, God is dead, whose thoughts on the will to power provided one of the main philosophical foundations for the Nazist ideology, once said, I may have been able to believe in a redeemer if I had ever met someone redeemed. He never met someone, he was claiming. Who really lived the Christian faith, reminded him of Jesus, who enfleshed the Christian promise we carry within. The reality is that everyone who encounters us is meant to encounter someone redeemed, someone raised from the dead. Everyone we meet should be able to spot in us someone who has seen Jesus, who remembers Jesus' words, and remembers him, who has had his life or her life totally changed by Jesus. And it recognizes that the greatest gift we could ever give someone else is the gift of the Lord. This obviously means that we seek to live like Jesus. As Christians, we give witness to what we believe, whether we want to or not. The question for us is whether we give witness to the risen Christ and his unbelievable gift of salvation, his teaching, love, presence, his church, or whether we give witness that we don't really believe what we profess we believe, or that we believe it conceptually, or that we don't really love the Lord in the gift of our faith. No matter how we've lived in the past, this Easter season, Jesus wants to raise us all from the dead with him. He wants to help us to experience the deep power of his resurrection so that we will no longer be troubled with questions arising in our hearts. But like the apostles after encountering Jesus in the upper room, will be incredulous for joy and amazed. On easter sunday evening jesus didn't throw a big party but instead formed us for the urgent task of going out and inviting everyone to the banquet god is indeed planning an eternal banquet a feast that will know no end and he's sending us out into the world with the invitation to strengthen us for that mission he comes to meet us this sunday in the upper room where he weekly even daily meets us gives us his peace opens our minds to understand the scriptures